Thank you and good evening. It's great to be here. Um, wonderful for, for me to get a chance to see the fabulous exhibition that uh, you have upstairs. I was told I would be bowled over by it. I had no idea how bowled over I would be. It is truly extraordinary. And the um, Gerald Ford Museum and the Foundation and the Ralph Hohenstein Center for Presidential Studies um, who have put together this lecture series really are to be congratulated for creating something that I don't think we'll ever see again. I certainly have not seen anything like it in 25 years of uh, toiling in the Lincoln field. It's just breathtaking. Um, it's wonderful particularly to meet and be introduced by Richard Norton Smith, um, who I feel I know, as he mentions through Brian Lamb and C-SPAN, a, a man who helps us um, understand the past through his writing and also helps us understand the present uh, through his, his uh, sensible and uh, informed commentary on television. So he's really an extraordinary combination of historian and seer. Um, I just want to do one quick story about the Lincoln-Douglas debates on C-SPAN that Richard alluded to. Brian gives me credit for inspiring the, uh, the debates. Actually, what happened, I was, I was on his Book Notes program, which most of you have seen, I'm sure. Not my program, but the Book Notes series. And uh, Brian Lamb turned to me and said, um, we're talking about my book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Don't you think that if we had Lincoln-Douglas debates today with the original speeches and the original characters, people would flock to see them and people would be interested? And I said, no, I don't think so, really. He said, you're wrong, and I'll show you. And he, that's, how, that's how I allegedly inspired it. <laughs> um, I was only beginning my career writing about Lincoln when Gerald Ford became president. Um, ironically, my first uh, published piece on Abraham Lincoln was about um, Gerald Ford's predecessor that inspired of all things by a picture of Richard Nixon in the White House uh, seated under a print of Abraham Lincoln. And um, what he was trying to suggest, I think, was that all presidents are alike. We all suffer from living in what Robert Lincoln called a gilded prison. It's very difficult. We're all sort of suffering the slings and arrows and the challenges that Lincoln did. I didn't write about President Nixon. I wrote about the, the image. But I was reminded again, seeing the uh, permanent uh, collection upstairs, that when um, his successor took office, he made sure he mentioned, uh, I don't know if every Lincoln speaker you've had in this series has mentioned this, but I certainly remember it. He came before the American people and said, um, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln. And um, I recall then, and think of it now, that there was a certain Lincolnian majesty, in a way, if that's not an oxymoron, a sort of um, quintessentially American combination of modesty and self-assurance that uh, Gerald Ford in that moment employed and sort of seemed, in spite of what he said, he seemed rather Lincolnian. And that's why it's particularly nice to visit here for the first time at a moment when the Lincoln and uh, uh, Ford connections have intersected for the exhibition that you've uh, sponsored. Well, the subject that, as, as Richard mentioned, that I've chosen for tonight is presidential images, how they're formed. Um, and of course, we know they're formed through 
such things as history making crises or um, something as casual or unforgettable as a memorable remark, a gesture, or a picture. Today, of course, presidential images are defined by moving pictures um, broadcast relentlessly on 24-hour TV news. A few generations ago, newsreels brought our presidents to life, and before television and film, Americans saw simpler, more static images. But because pictures were so rare and so seldom seen compared to today, such a new innovation, really, mass-produced pictures were, that they made, I would suggest, an even greater impression on the public than the dizzying volume and variety of images that bombard us on television do today. So tonight, I thought I would like to show you and speak to you about how Lincoln himself, a modest, uh, self-effacing fellow, if there ever was one, and this is my moment to launch into the stories that, happily for this audience, Richard has already disposed of quite nicely. A self-effacing and modest man, if there ever was one, took a surprisingly direct hand in shaping his own image, leaving us an archive that tells us a great deal about how his contemporaries saw him, and something, I think, as well about how Lincoln saw himself. Now, we know Lincoln principally from his photographs. Few of his paintings grace art museums, and most of his statues live in the shadows of public buildings or uh, compete with uh, trees and flowers for attention in city parks. But once these pictures that look static to us today were influential sensations. I don't know what better word there is to describe them. Far more important were the fine works of art, the works of fine art, than photographs. Well, where do they come from? Why were they made and by whom? It's a, compli a complicated question, and that's what I would like to answer tonight. Now, you won't see any masterpieces in my slides that I will show you in a few minutes. You will see what I call political art that wielded considerable influence on public opinion and on historical reputation in the Lincoln era. But again, it requires a leap of historical imagination to appreciate their influence today. These images were all unveiled, these paintings, these statues, before American art museums opened their doors. By and large, museums like the Met, um, Chicago, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, all of which were opened in the same year, are post-Civil War phenomenons. They existed before photographs could even be reproduced in newspapers. Of course, before motion pictures, television, needless to say, the internet. In an age when images were precious and political leaders were heroes, when their portraits were lovingly displayed in American homes, just as previous generations had um, displayed religious icons, and sort of in the manner that uh, teenagers display the Backstreet Boys today. Uh, these images graced American homes as decorations and as the reproductions of the paintings as testimony to your political point of view. Today, Abraham Lincoln no longer seems a man, but a rather ubiquitous icon. And as these initial slides tell you, as familiar as the engravings on the copper penny and the old $5 bill, and just as easy in a way 
to take for granted. Lost to us now are the roots of images like these, and in the case of the penny and the old $5 bill, they can be found in two extraordinary photographs by Matthew Brady. Now that in itself is not unusual. Lincoln was no stranger to photographers' galleries. But look at these early photos for a moment, neither of which ever graced coins or currency. Or these sort of prairie primitives, one taken when he was a presidential candidate at left, the other when he was a president. No danger of seeing these poses copied by artists and engravers either. But back to the penny profile and the old $5 bill photograph. What is it that elevated these above the pictures we just saw? The answer is that a painter accompanied Lincoln to Matthew Brady's gallery the day these pictures were taken. A painter posed Lincoln before the cameras, arranging not only these photographs, but these as well, among the most famous ever made of the 16th president. In the case of the photograph at right, you see the inspiration for the new $5 bill. Um, an artist's eyes and hands guided this sitting, and the results proved unforgettable. What does that tell us? That the artist's eye was special, and that Lincoln was prepared to subject to the artist's counsel to improve his image. Now, Lincoln had posed often for camera operators before the spring of 1860 when he emerged into the national spotlight. But that year, he met a professional artist for the first time. He was a Chicago sculptor named Leonard Volk. But Lincoln was too busy to pose for him. Volk persisted. Finally, he made Lincoln an offer that he couldn't refuse. He would make a plaster cast of Lincoln's face in only an hour and use that to make a bust didn't seem like too much to ask. So on March 31st, 1860, Volk lathered plaster over Lincoln's face and let it set until it hardened. Unfortunately, when he tried to pull it off, he couldn't budge it. And Lincoln had to take hold of it with his hands and work it off himself, Volk remembered. Gradually, because Volk kept telling him, don't break it, whatever you do, don't break it. So Lincoln pulled it off and it pulled hairs out of his temple and eyebrows. And Volk recalled that he didn't think Lincoln was crying from the pain, but that his eyes were watering from the short hairs being pulled out from the temples. Well, it's, it's a wonder that Lincoln ever posed again for any artist after this ordeal. But he did. And it is one of the great ironies of history that a, a man so persistently modest and self-deprecating about his appearance made himself available to so many artists. And I think that's because he became aware of how much good they could do him in his effort to broaden his appeal to the voters and ultimately to enshrine his place in American memory. Volk went on to make a positive impression of the life mask and used it to create this small bust in April 1860, about a month before Lincoln was nominated for the presidency. Now, Lincoln was asked to come back to the studio to pose shirtless uh, so Volk could capture what he called the brawny shoulders as nature presented them. Um, the, this topless uh, encounter may have embarrassed Lincoln a little bit because when it was finally done, 
he raced out of the artist's uh, Chicago studio so quickly without bothering to say goodbye that he forgot to pull his undershirt up before buttoning his shirt. And he didn't realize this until someone stopped him on the street to tell him that he was dragging the top half of his union suit behind him in the street. So on this occasion, Lincoln had no choice but to go back to Volk's studio and ask him to help him dress. Um, but he did forget his mortification. That's strike two for Volk, by the way, right? He did forget his mortification when he saw the finished sculpture. In two or three days after Mr. Volk commenced my bust, Lincoln told friends, there was the animal himself. As for Volk, he took one look at that animal, especially after he won the nomination, and wisely decided to make Lincoln his life's work. He went on to mass produce these draped busts, these undraped versions of the bust, um, cleverly promoting these reproductions in a series of publicity photographs, like <coughs> the one at left showing him in bohemian style artist garb. I doubt whether he actually did his work wearing a, a fez. Um, supposedly he's shown here hard at work on his Lincoln, which you can see is actually completed uh, in this picture. You see the, um, and in the background, does anybody recognize the fellow in the background? It's just in case Stephen Douglas won the election, Volk <laughs> has his bust of Stephen Douglas ready. Actually, it was an act of disloyalty and bravery for Volk to do Lincoln because his wife, Volk's wife, was a relative of Stephen A. Douglas's, so in a way. And before long, this became the standard Lincoln three-dimensional work of art. You could see in the photograph at right, Lincoln's old Illinois friend Isaac Arnold um, having his photograph taken with the Volk Lincoln bust in the background. Nor was Volk done sculpting Lincoln. His great ambition was to make a life-size monument. That's what he felt all of these works were leading to. So he rushed to Lincoln's hometown as soon as Lincoln was nominated for the presidency to make plaster casts of his hands. Um, and there he found him as the photograph hints, and there's an original upstairs in the exhibition I learned today, uh, with his right hand badly swollen from all the handshaking uh, from well-wishers and with well-wishers after winning the nomination. So Lincoln is sort of self-consciously covering his right hand with his left hand so no one can see the swelling. Um, it's taken the same day, where, I mean, Lincoln went from the photograph studio back home and there Volk um, did the cast of Lincoln's hand, asking him to grasp a prop, a sawed-off broom handle, which Lincoln sawed off himself in his woodshed, before letting Volk lather on the plaster. And he holds the broom handle in his right hand to sort of take attention away from the fact that the right hand was so much larger than the left that day and had such, so many fewer veins showing because of the swelling. The results have been adapted independently, by the way, for by every future sculptor who ever attempted to portray Lincoln, including Daniel Chester French, um, who undoubtedly consulted them for the Lincoln Memorial. For the next five years, Volk worked tirelessly on his Lincolns, creating full-length statuettes. Again, one of Volk's statuettes is upstairs, a bronze version, in plain plaster and polychrome versions, like the one at right, selling thousands of his life mask replicas and busts 
and inspiring countless copies and imitations as well. Sadly, by the time Volk got around to making a public statue, um, it wasn't much noticed. This is in the new state capital in Springfield. All the tourists go to the old state capital. This is in the new state capital. But what Volk had done was helped introduce Lincoln to the country, and he had created a, an artist's model for the ages. Soon the other artistic media would follow and do much the same thing. Audiences in 1860 were really insatiably hungry to see what this new national man looked like. And they didn't know when his nomination to the presidency was announced. Very few people outside Illinois knew what Abraham Lincoln looked like. It's hard, I know, to imagine nominating a candidate without subjecting him or her to a complete and sordid investigation of all things public and private. Um, some opposition newspapers immediately suggested that Lincoln should be disqualified from office uh, because he was so ugly, his looks did not merit his elevation to the highest office. And the first published images were not particularly reassuring. <laughs> the mere sight of the lithograph had left, actually I think it's a woodcut, a wood engraving, only three of them known in the world, and one of them is upstairs in the exhibition. The mere sight of it, it was showered from the balconies of the convention in Chicago the moment Lincoln was nominated for president. So most people probably trampled them. That's why there are so few left. But it was, this was, the sight of this was enough to horrify most of the delegates when they saw it. And Courier and Ives' popular prints, you see an example at the right, did little to mollify loyal Republicans around the country who wondered whether the delegates had taken leave of their senses. Um, the publication of one such print led a critic to dismiss Lincoln as what he called a horrid-looking wretch. Now, it would be dramatic and exciting to report at this time that the great portrait painters of the era, men like Eastman Johnson or William Morris Hunt or Daniel Huntington, now flocked west to portray Abraham Lincoln. But they didn't. He was still rather beneath them, scarcely known and living far away from the artistic metropolises that they um, frequented, backed by few patrons who were wealthy enough to support artists of that caliber. So the task was left to novices, itinerants, um, and yes, quite a few hacks. They found a subject in Lincoln. Fascinating in terms of what he looked like. Um, because fact is, Abraham Lincoln didn't look like anybody else in the country. Later on, you see people trying to make themselves look like Abraham Lincoln, growing beards, wearing stovepipe hats. That's why there are so many putative and uh, supposed photographs of Lincoln that are still uncovered today, because people made a volitional effort to copy him. But he was a pretty unique looking guy. However. He was also a subject who did not really cooperate very much with artists. He tended to lapse into a kind of a lifeless daze when he was posing for them. It couldn't have been easy. But we care about the results because of their immediacy and their intimacy. The living Lincoln posing, the artist sketching or modeling him in the flesh in those early days of his fame on the brink of destiny. 
The first painting from life was this canvas by Thomas Hicks. His relative, Edward Hicks, was famous. Thomas Hicks was not particularly famous, but a good bloodline. Commissioned by a New York print publisher to go west to make a portrait that could be lithographed back in New York and relieve Eastern Republicans' anxiety about Lincoln's appearance. Hicks had only a couple of days to do the work. Lincoln agreed to sit, but not to sit still. So Hicks did what others would do. He consulted the latest Lincoln photograph. In fact, I've always wondered whether Hicks did not commission and pose this photograph himself. At the very least, it was barely a week old by the time uh, Hicks did his painting. Lincoln liked the picture, Hicks's picture, very much. He said, it has a somewhat pleasanter expression than I usually have, but that is not an objection. And back in New York, uh, Hicks rolled up this canvas and took it back on the trains to New York, and the publishers didn't object either. Um, in New York, it was lithographed uh, in this very large uh, format uh, print, rare today again, and was something of a bestseller in New York in the summer and fall of 1860. So three artistic media had played a role in the dissemination of this influential image a photographic model, an original oil painting, and a print adaptation. It was the first, but certainly not the last time, that such a cooperative venture would be accomplished. Other artists faced the same challenges with Lincoln. Lincoln gave them all access to his temporary campaign office in the Illinois State House, but insisted that they come early, stay briefly, and work only while he opened his mail. One painter who tried to meet the challenge without resorting to photographic models was a fellow named Charles Alfred Barry, hired by this time a Boston publisher to make a portrait for Massachusetts voters. Barry wanted to capture what he described as Lincoln's Jacksonian firmness. And this is, no, this is Jackson, that's okay. The real laugh comes in a minute. This is a real Jackson. I just showed the, put this up there for comparison. Um, but your reaction is interesting. <laughs> um, the new Jackson was not much help. He said to, to uh, Barry, they want my head, do they? Well, if you can get it, you can have it. But don't fasten me into a chair. That was his way of disarming the artists. Um, Barry later admitted, I had no end of trouble in getting the expression I wanted. His countenance changed. Um, so much, and his portrait, now you can laugh, made Lincoln look more like a Greek god than like old Hickory. Um, but the eyes still do dream brightly and magnetically. Who knows what national upheaval they foresaw even then. The drawing was also lavishly lithographed back in Boston, and it proved startling enough to some people. By the way, people laughed at this picture uproariously in Springfield. They thought it made Lincoln look much too handsome, and sort of like a Roman senator. They found it amusing. And if they didn't laugh at the painting and this print, they laughed at a piracy. Copyright laws were not too strict in 1860 and thereafter. So if a printmaker saw a print he liked, he thought, well, why don't I just do one exactly like it? And here's a copy that was put out about that time. <laughs> this is sort of a interesting adaptation of a life portrait, although once again, 
life portraiture had merged with print portraiture to disseminate the Lincoln image. Next into Springfield in this parade of uh, creative talent was Thomas Johnston um, of Boston, full of criticism for Barry's work. And to his credit, he also shunned the crutch of photography. His original has vanished. We don't know where it is. There's something for intrepid collectors like Jack Smith to look for in, uh, in the years to come. But um, all we have left is the lithograph that the life portrait inspired. And judging by its rarity, it was not very popular because within weeks, uh, the artist followed it up with a lithograph copied directly from a two-year-old photograph, which achieved a much wider circulation. We don't know what went wrong with that earlier production. Maybe the rise of photography had spoiled celebrity sitters. Like other busy men of his era, Lincoln was not willing to freeze in rigid immobility for hours for painters when he could sit before the cameras in a fraction of that time. Young painters often had to rely on glimpses of their subjects in action, augmenting their experiences with photos, never enjoying the kind of formal sittings that Gilbert Stewart had elicited from George Washington. Those days, as far as Lincoln was concerned, were over. An amateur artist named Lewis Peter Clover tried anyway, with the result you see it left. Um, a contemporary once suggested that Lincoln's head looked like a coconut, and this picture actually comes closest to that description. And painter Alban Jasper Conant got Lincoln to smile so much, as you see in the portrait on the right, that his wife commented when she saw this painting, I hope this is the way he looks after election day. This is actually one of the great campaign images, but like the hapless Clover picture on the left, it, was never, it never inspired a popular print. And that's because informal images were not usually adapted. They had to be formal in the Victorian era to qualify for reproduction to hang in that most sacred of domestic settings, the family parlor. Then to Springfield came an artist named John Henry Brown. That's a self-portrait there. A specialist in miniature painting. He was hired by a rich Pennsylvania jurist, disgusted by what he called the horrible caricatures he had seen of Lincoln. And you've just seen them. Um, he ordered Brown to bring back what he called a good-looking picture, whether the original would justify it or not. <laughs> Brown was paying. He thought he, would, he should get exactly what he ordered. Well, Brown promptly took Lincoln to a local photographer and had a handsome ambertype made. And this is the result. Let's see if I can pull up the ambertype here. No. Well, anyway, he had an ambertype made, and the painting is there. And it did inspire an engraving that was widely distributed in the crucial state of Pennsylvania, which Lincoln won. It was an object of great interest in the Lincoln campaign. You can read the letters of Lincoln's private secretary urging the publisher to get the print out so that it could make it to the public in time to be distributed well in advance of the campaign. So Lincoln is elected in November of 1860. And at that point, he might have ceased inspiring artists for a while had he not done something to radically alter his appearance. And of course, what he did 
was grow whiskers. So engravers like Sartain, who did the picture at right, had to quickly issue new prints with beards slapped on their suddenly outdated plates to create new Lincolns for suddenly reawakened customers. Because unlike paintings, which sometimes are done for artistic reasons, prints are always done for commercial reasons. If there's an audience, there will be a print. And the beard inspired um, this new outpouring. The last life portrait of the clean-shaven Lincoln is this handsome portrait by G.P.A. Healy, really one of the best paintings ever made of Lincoln. And then there was the case of painter Jesse Atwood. He too left Springfield with a new beardless portrait of Lincoln. Um, it would have been the last painting of Lincoln clean-shaven, but when this artist of presidential portraits, he had painted something like 11 presidents in his time, learned that Lincoln had grown a beard, his painting grew a beard too. So um, rather than being a lifelike glimpse of Lincoln as he looked right after his election, Atwood superimposed whiskers on his portrait as well. The first authentically bearded Lincoln life portrait was the work of the man you see at left, sculptor Thomas D. Jones, who created this magnificent bust of Lincoln around Christmas 1860, just about the time, as the artist put it, that a deep-seated melancholy took possession of Lincoln's soul, transforming his face from mobility into an iron mask. But Lincoln liked the finished work, commenting um, in typical homespun style, it looks very much like the critter. Um, it almost got destroyed. Lincoln opened his mail, uh, as I mentioned, when he was posing, as he did for all of the pictures and sculptures. In those heady days in the distant past when people used to open, president candidates used to open their own mail. And he got a suspicious looking package, shades of 2001. Um, and they didn't know what was in it. They shook it, he showed it to Jones, and they said, well, we have an idea, let's open it against the base of this sculpture. So in case it's an explosive device, if it goes off, the sculpture will absorb the shock. And it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, but apparently they did this. Um, it would have destroyed the sculpture and them. And what was in the package was a whistle that had been made from the tail of a pig. And Lincoln spent the rest of that day, instead of opening his mail, trying desperately to get a sound out of this pig's tail whistle while Jones was working on the bust. Um, as you see here, it also inspired prints, the first prints of a statue of Lincoln, again demonstrating that interdependence of artistic media. Um, Lincoln's image is suddenly changing now from this rugged frontiersman, the Jacksonian-looking man, into a bearded statesman worthy of the challenges awaiting him in Washington. Well, the artists were awaiting him in Washington, too. He no sooner arrived there than a painter named George Henry Story rushed him off to a photographer's gallery for this portrait of the beleaguered man, as he put it, wholly absorbed in thought. Story used it as a model for the painting at right. For some reason, I have yet to be able to figure out, it took Story 55 years to complete it. 1916 was the date that he put on the portrait, and we don't know of one earlier. So I don't know exactly what he was waiting for, but it could have earned Story 
the reputation as painting the first presidential portrait of Lincoln, but he obviously missed that time, that opportunity, and that honor. Which is doubly ironic because for a time, the painters and the sculptors stopped coming to Lincoln. He was president, there were new military celebrities around who were more interesting, or at least more timely, audiences and artists, lost interest for a while in Abraham Lincoln, but they found it again when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln's fame as an emancipator has been under scrutiny and subject to debate these days among historians uh, and in the public, but there's one thing that cannot be questioned, and that is that artists recognized the, the emancipation as a, an epical, revolutionary, nation-changing event from the moment it was announced. And though he was busier than ever, this is another telling thing, Lincoln made more time than ever for artists, knowing that the artists were crucial to his securing in history the place that he now clearly thought he deserved. Now a Philadelphia artist named Edward D. Marchant was the first to portray Lincoln as an emancipator. He spent three months working on the portrait at left. Um, Lincoln accepted the invitation to sittings when Marchant said that the Philadelphia City Fathers wanted to hang it in Independence Hall, a building that Lincoln had pledged to defend with his life on his way to his inauguration. He revered the founders. The thought must have truly tickled his fancy that his portrait would hang alongside those of Washington and Jefferson and Franklin in Independence Hall. It didn't ultimately. It only was displayed there briefly and the painting wound up in the Union League of Philadelphia where it resides today. The slide doesn't do it justice, but it shows Lincoln signing the proclamation wearing an uncharacteristic formal white tie. Um, literally, his signature breaks the chains of the Statue of Liberty there that had been shackled by the, uh, the scourge of slavery. And the painting was engraved. By the way, it was based in part on a photograph, as you see. And it was also engraved immediately, just in time, not coincidentally, for Lincoln's 1864 re-election campaign. Its success and influence also, again, inspired cheap piracies, like this one, which omitted the Liberty Statue altogether. Um, maybe to avoid copyright challenges. But the popularity of the print confirms that what Americans wanted was this formal vision of Lincoln. They knew he was a simple man who liked funny stories, telling jokes, um, going to the theater, doing other untoward things. Formal images were what served as the other side of that um, informal image. Um, and that may explain why some of these charming life sketches by a French artist named Pierre Morand were not made public in their own time, even though they're really refreshing and wonderful. Um, imagine a modern president strolling alone through the streets of Washington, as Lincoln did with Morand in tow, or relaxing on the porch of the White House, or at the right, um, in the garden of his summer home. Morand also managed to capture the only known life portrait of husband and wife together. They never posed for a photographer together. Leaving the White House for their summer retreat, or at least for their carriage, I don't think they walked there, but Lincoln carrying a, uh, a uh, little carpet bag 
long before Jimmy Carter again made it uh, popular for presidents to carry their own luggage. No one remembers that. That's interesting. I say, mention that every once in a while, but people have totally forgotten uh, Jimmy Carter carrying his garment bags through airports. But uh, it's interesting how we forget some presidential images. Um, more typical of what the public wanted to see was this full-length pose by William Cogswell. Um, I was astonished to see the original upstairs in the exhibition. I don't think it's ever traveled since it was commissioned by Congress. Um, Cogswell got $3,000 for the picture, which was a good amount of money. Um, or this primitive painting of Lincoln unveiling his Emancipation Proclamation, unrolling it really, painted by William T. Matthews, discovered in the condition you see it right here um, at a garage sale on Long Island in New York, purchased for $3. It was only about 20 years ago. Um, and now, as you see, since fully restored, costing the restoration costs quite a bit more, I'm sure. <laughs> now, our friend G.P.A. Healy came back to see Lincoln in Washington and painted this thoughtful portrait that now graces the, the White House. Actually, it was copied and enlarged from Healy's group painting, The Peacemakers. In this case, the group picture came first and the model second, which is unusual showing Lincoln and his commanders at their final war council. Sherman, Grant, Nixon, and Admiral Porter. Among its admirers is former President George Bush, um, who had his own official White House portrait painted with the Healy in the distant background you see there, but with Lincoln blocked out because the artist told me President Bush did not want anyone to think he was comparing himself um, to Lincoln. By 1863, Lincoln also seemed incomparable to a number of sculptors, um, like Sarah Fisher Ames, you see here, the wife of a famous artist and a professional sculptor. The US Senate commissioned her to make this bus portrait, which today graces a niche above the Senate gallery. Long overlooked is the fact that it was Ames who took Lincoln to Alexander Gardner's photograph gallery to take this photograph, which one of our uh, guests tonight reminded me was taken 138 years today, November 8th, 1863. Um, it's a very famous photograph. I'm sure most of you have seen it. It's usually described as the photograph right before Gettysburg. Well, that it is chronologically, but what it really is, is a photograph that a sculptor had asked Lincoln to pose for so she could do a, 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 sculptor, a sculpture at her leisure. Another sculpture project. This is the Treasury Building, which then has now sits across the way from the White House. In early 1864, it became a studio for sculptor William Marshall Swain. Lincoln called the resulting work, My Favorite Mud Head. Um, it was later cast in plaster and photographed, as you see it right, that's a photo of it, winning fame in photograph albums as well as on pedestals. No sculptor ever did as much work on the Lincoln theme, however, or aroused as much controversy as this young woman. Vinnie Rehm, whose early work was hardly good enough to earn her private sessions in the president's office, but she got them anyway. Please don't think what I hope you're not thinking. <laughs> Another White House intern story. Um, 
fact is, people of the day, including Lincoln's wife, were a little bit suspicious about Vinnie Ream and why she got so much private time with Lincoln. She was pretty, tiny, vivacious, photogenic, and in her way, seductive enough to count four or five married Washington VIPs among her patrons. Um, apparently, Lincoln fell under her spell, too, because he granted her access to the White House to produce an improved, but still not terribly good, bust portrait, and remaining patient with her until she came through with this reflective and rather good bust shortly before the president's death in 1865. Well, Vinnie was a sensation. Not only was the Teenage Wonders photograph, uh, sculpture photographed, you see it here in a, an album photograph, but Vinnie herself was painted along with her great work, and she became quite a celebrity. And when Congress announced a $10,000 competition for a full-length statue for the Capitol, the precocious Vinnie entered the competition, and Lincoln's widow went crazy. I mean, she didn't literally go crazy, but she did not like it. Uh, she predicted a mortifying failure, which will be a severe trial, she warned, for the nation and the world. But of course, the world really wanted to listen to Vinnie, not to Mary Lincoln. Um, Mary complained that she got the commission because when the Senate was debating it, Vinnie appeared in the ladies' galleries and leaned over to watch the debate while wearing a provocative low-cut dress. <laughs> Mary Lincoln complained to her friends that Vinnie Ream had gotten her commission in the time-honored way that artists do by displaying her busts to the public. <laughs> in the end, against all odds, working in Carrara marble, she did this brilliant sculpture, which was a triumph. It has stood in the Capitol Rotunda ever since, looming over state funerals and greeting tourists with the welcoming outstretched hand. Um, Reem remained a celebrity for the rest of her life. No such lionization ever greeted this artist, Francis Bicknell Carpenter. Yet he did more than any other artist in any medium to forge what we know as the public and private images of Lincoln. When he first heard about emancipation, he said he must go to Washington to consecrate it and to celebrate Lincoln. He wanted to paint the first reading of the proclamation to the cabinet in July of 1862. So he got political endorsements. He got patrons to pay for the trip. And Lincoln welcomed him. It helped to have political patronage. Um, turning him loose in the White House, as he put it, granting him access to the office, allowing him to create a makeshift studio in the state dining room, where he unrolled a 14 by nine foot canvas and began to work on this heroic picture of the moment when Lincoln first announced the proclamation to the cabinet. All but functioning as a court artist, really, for six months. Um, all he lacked was great talent. He certainly had a genius for ideas and public taste, understanding public taste. Um, these are pages from his surviving scrapbook in which he experimented with making Lincoln's, deciding whether Lincoln should stand up in his picture. He took notes about the details of the room. He had Lincoln photographed in his White House office, this which is the Lincoln bedroom today, stand, sitting by the table where he read the proclamation for the first time. Um, that's the artist's feet you see in that photograph. He clipped this cutout head for a scrapbook because that's the way he wanted to paint 
Lincoln. Um, and when these pictures were turned out fuzzy because they weren't taken under professional um, uh, situations, there was no light, he took Lincoln to the studio, to Brady's. Remember I told you at the beginning of the lecture that an artist accompanied Lincoln to Brady's. Well, it was Carpenter. Um, got him to make the penny profile and the $5 bill photograph and these. And then Carpenter continued working very hard on this, painting oil sketches of the cabinet ministers that he wanted to put in the picture. Secretary of the Navy Wells and Secretary of the Treasury Chase, Secretary of State Seward, who was actually his hero from the same region of New York State, and of course, Lincoln. The artist himself posed for the cameras in the way, in the, exactly the pose in which he decided to paint Seward, and he decided to group the liberal the, uh, cabinet ministers at left to conservatives at right. And here is the result. Judged absolutely perfect by Lincoln, nicknamed sort of sardonically Your Happy Family by Mary Lincoln, and later exhibited publicly, as you see from this ad, to very wide acclaim. Difficult as it is to imagine a, a static canvas igniting such excitement today, no artist had ever before peeked into a cabinet meeting, much less the most momentous cabinet meeting of the 19th century. And Carpenter proved a brilliant marketer. Though he later overpainted his canvas, he first, at least, had it engraved. And this print became the biggest best-selling and most influential Lincoln image ever produced. In fact, Lincoln signed on as the first subscriber, as you see here, although he did not live to get his $50 proof copy. He would have been surprised, I think, to learn that the print stayed in print for more than 30 years. So popular that when a fire struck the building where the plate was stored, a newspaper felt compelled to report that the plate had escaped the flames. That's how important it was to audiences. Carpenter also published a best-selling memoir of his White House experiences, and another burst of promotional energy took his original study portrait of Lincoln that he made in the White House and had that engraved as well. Mary Lincoln absolutely hated that book that Carpenter wrote, but she loved this picture. She called it the most perfect likeness of my beloved husband that I ever saw. Carpenter used his White House time profitably. He also did these luminous husband and wife portraits of Mary and Abraham Lincoln, along with a unique miniature that imagined Lincoln without a beard. He, of course, had had a beard by then for four years. And this portrait later, um, he kept painting Lincoln for about 30 years, always stubbornly dating his pictures 1864, the year that he had had six months in the White House as Lincoln's artist in residence. We don't know when his pictures were really painted. That's the problem. We can tell when his talent started to ebb that they were probably done later. Now, Carpenter also had unique and equal influence over Lincoln's private image perhaps even more. Um, in truth, Lincoln did not enjoy much family happiness um, after entering the White House. His oldest son was away at college much of the time. His middle son died, um, tragically plunging Mary into what she plaintively called her fiery furnace of affliction. Youngest son, Tad, seen here with his father, uh, suffered was a, from a speech impediment, was considered ineducable, probably a learning disorder. It was not a happy family, particularly, but 
Carpenter was so moved by occasional glimpses of Lincoln reading to Tad that again it was he who arranged this photograph taken on the very day the $5 bill and the penny profile were taken under his supervision. I show it here in reverse on purpose because that's the way, as you see, Carpenter painted it when he did this charming uh, adaptation. And then he ingeniously expanded that Lincoln and Tad model into a uh, backstairs version of his emancipation painting uh, and sold this to a printmaker for $500. Again, that became a Lincoln family print. Unfortunately, by the time he finished the work, he worked rather laboriously on it. Other printmakers had used that same Brady photograph for their uh, pictures, and Carpenter did not get the credit that he deserved as the creator of the Lincoln family image. And that's how one painter invented the enduring images of Lincoln, both as a determined liberator and as a loving family man, images that to this day remain central to national memory. The final painting of Lincoln from life was produced by this man, Matthew Henry Wilson from Connecticut, who got all of $85 to paint this, his picture for um, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. This is the picture also required a specially commissioned photograph as a model. But it, Lincoln liked the result. He called it, he joked that it was horridly like the original. Um, and that's why he liked it. Um, but inspired, it inspired this lithograph. And that it, this is the last popular print based on a Lincoln portrait from life. In a way, it's altogether fitting and proper as Lincoln might have put it, that the last portrait from life of Abraham Lincoln, much like the first, was a life mask, made the day before his last birthday by this man, Clark Mills. Now, no doubt remembering his painful ordeal posing for Leonard Volk five years earlier, Lincoln had this reply um, when Mills asked him to pose for this mask. If you want to kill me, just take a knife and cut my throat. But Mills said he had a new process. He could make a cast without taking a hair. The process was a stocking went over Lincoln's head first, then the plaster. And Lincoln could take the, the plaster never completely hardened. It came off in semi-hard pieces, and then it could be pieced back together. So it was sort of painless. And Lincoln consented. And perhaps at the sculptor's suggestion, he had his hair cut short. Now this photograph is upstairs in the uh, exhibition as well um, in his 1990s spiked look here. Um, but again, this is another famous photograph that's never acknowledged for what it really is. Lincoln just doesn't happen to say, let me now get a spiked hairdo. Um, he cut his hair so he could get through the life mask process without pain. Why did he feel he had to get through the life mask process? Because he knew that works of art like this would ensure and perpetuate his fame. He can't envision that Henry Fonda and Raymond Massey would play him in the movies because there are no movies. So this is what he knows he has to do. Well, Mills never made Lincoln into the cottage industry that Volk did. And maybe that's because once Lincoln died, this gaunt life mask seemed too hauntingly fragile, almost doomed to inspire reproductions. Studying these two life masks made only five years apart, Lincoln's private secretary, John Hay, 
was painfully reminded of how much the Civil War had ravaged this once robust man. As Hay observed, and I quote, the first is of a man 51 years old and young for his years. The face has a clean, firm outline. It is free from fat, but the muscles are hard and full. The large, mobile mouth is ready to speak, to shout or laugh. The bold, curved nose is substantial with spreading nostrils. It is a face full of life, of energy, of vivid aspiration. The other is so sad and peaceful in its infinite repose that the famous sculptor St. Gaudens insisted when he first saw it that it was a death mask. The lines are set as if the living face, like the copy, had been made in bronze. The nose is thin and lengthened by the emaciation of the cheeks. The mouth is fixed like that of an archaic statue. A look as of one, one on whom sorrow and care had done their worst without victory is on all the features. The whole expression is of unspeakable sadness and all-sufficing strength. In just five years, the painters and sculptors had captured the political rise and physical decline of an American symbol, both the sadness and the strength. And their work surely deserves the attention that has so long eluded it. Through their skills and through their influence on photography and popular prints, these artists ingeniously introduced an unknown Lincoln to America and then recorded, and perhaps influenced, his metamorphosis from political candidate to secular saint, from man to myth, from representative Westerner who suggested the promise of American opportunity to national icon who symbolized the preservation of democracy and the full realization of freedom, who then gave his life to save the nation's life. That is the Lincoln the artist saw and immortalized from life. Thank you very much. Yeah.